before we get into more leadership stuff, I want to ask you, why is Nazareth Business School better than St. John Fisher's? <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth, you ready? Yeah, go ahead. All right, perfect. Ty, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Let's kick off season two. Timeout. Tyler, who are we taking a timeout with today? Well, thank you, Kevin. It's been a while, man. And a happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And today we're taking a timeout with Kenneth Reed, the Dean of the School of Business and Leadership at Nazareth College. Uh, Kenneth, thanks for taking a timeout with us this morning. Um, and start things off, Kenneth, what is the best movie of all time? Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be part of the, your show. Um, I, I heard fantastic and glowing reviews about what you <laughs> both do. So it's, it's my privilege to be here with you today. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having a fun time for the next hour or so. And, and so to respond to your first question, what is, well, there are quite a few, uh, but if I have to pick one, I think I'll go with Chariots of Fire. Ooh, okay, okay. That's a, that's a, that's a I, movie I, I have only I was seen young. Part, bits and pieces of. <laughs> but that's well, a good... fantastic music to go with the movie, uh, um, but the, uh, you know, just the premise and the, uh, you know, just de depicting the uh, people with different background and they're uh, striving to achieve excellence and, and, and the process to get there, I, I think it's really fascinating. Mm. Well, now I have, now Tyler and I have to add that to the watch list. We'll have to pop some popcorn, watch some cherry to fire this weekend. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So Kenneth, uh, like uh, like uh, Tyler just said, we just got through Thanksgiving, one holiday, and I know my waistline is already feeling it. But uh, what did you go back for seconds for at the uh, Thanksgiving table? Uh, well, um, typical. Well, this year was an exception because um, I pretty much spent the Thanksgiving on my own this year. Oh. Uh, but pre previous years, where where we had uh, folks here. Um, Second, um, probably more turkey. Okay, all right. There's some turkey haters around. Yeah, you know, I usually go for a. I usually go for a drumstick, uh, unless there are, there are others who wants it, then I will basically you know give up my drumstick. But uh, you know, I'll go for the first one, and maybe if nobody wants it, I'll go for the second drumstick. Oh, that's uh, I love oh, that by myself. <laughs> Who's breaking the wishbone though? In your family, <laughs> uh, typically my wife. <laughs> where, where do y'all usually have Thanksgiving, Kenneth? Where uh, I mean, usually here. Uh, sometimes we have family coming over here. This year, unfortunately, this year we couldn't get together. My wife is away. Uh, um, she is teaching at uh, Wisconsin's, and so she couldn't make it back. So, so it was kind of very different Thanksgiving, but. Uh, you know, with uh, what's happening with COVID and everything else, I think everybody wants to be, uh, everyone wants to be more careful. Yeah, I think I saw that. Did you go to Wisconsin lacrosse? Yes, I, I did. So my, my AAU coach in basketball went to Wisconsin lacrosse. He was about a 5'10 redhead guy who, who, who taught me how to shoot the three ball like, an, like a maniac. And he, he would just have this. I was down in Arkansas and he had this crazy accent to us. And we were like, who is this alien? You know, he's five, <laughs> maybe five, 10 red hair, but could just fill it up and always mentioned Wisconsin lacrosse and the Packers, you know, yes. every day of practice, but yeah, Packers, I, I uh, <laughs> yeah. If you, if you're not a Packers fan and living in Wisconsin, there's something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> here's a little trick I learned. Um, so if you want to go shopping or do something, and avoid the crowd, but go out there when Packers are playing because nobody would be there because <laughs> everybody would be watching the game. So that's a little secret. That's a little trick, a little trip, tr trick of the trade. <laughs> little trick. Actually, I have a funny story to go with it. Uh, one time, my my supervisor, my dean, I was associate dean at the time, she actually uh, scheduled a reception, and I still don't know why, but she scheduled it right before the Packers game. Well, guess what? 
a lot of people didn't come and and even those people who came left right away because they didn't want to miss the Packers game so, so we had actually a lot of fans though are the nicest fans in football I have heard that oh yes take their losses as well as you're leaving the exit uh from the from the stadium now you some would say are a bit of a journeyman Kenneth you've you also were uh, out at, uh, working at uh, Wisconsin Lacrosse as well, and then I saw also down in mm-hmm. Kentucky. Um, but now you're here in sure. Rochester working at Nazareth, one of one of the most prestigious uh, higher education schools in our area. What the heck is your favorite thing about Rochester? Uh, Rochester, uh, I think just um, I think the people. I think people tend to be very friendly, and. Um, and I, I enjoy meeting a lot of people. You know, I think the Rochester has that uh, kind of big city opportunities, but with the small city, uh, the uh, sentiment or the uh, the feeling of being in a small city. Um, and you know, one thing I learned is that people know everybody. Once you make a connection, that it leads to other people. <laughs> So, so, you know, even though we're not a you know, very small town, it feels like we're living in a small town. Mm-hmm. So it really has the best of both. And, you know, I, I used to joke to people that the uh, you know, lacrosse, uh, we don't have an Apple store. So I'm a big Apple fan. I use a lot of Apple devices. So, you know, if I have to buy something, I couldn't go down to the store, just grab it. Whereas here, now I could. So. That's a huge advantage of being in Rochester. <laughs> well, don't get too attached to those shopping centers because they might not be around for long. But... <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. Kenneth, it's I like a to... dinosaurs. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, can I wanted to ask you what what at what age were you when you decided and knew that you were going to be a dean? Because, like in my mind, I'll never be a dean. You know, that just is so out there to me for for my skill set right let's just say that like when did you say hey i'm kenneth three and i'm gonna be a dean uh let's see uh not too long ago 20 maybe 2016 um so prior to that i was directing a um, executive program and you know i was working with students working with the program working with the uh stakeholders outside the uh um, university and i was very happy uh, running the program. And then some of my colleagues came to me and said, Ken, you know, you've done a great job managing the program, helping students. Uh, when are you going to be a dean? I said, well, I mean, I'm very happy in terms of what I'm doing. So why should I be a dean? And one of them says, well, you know, think about it this way. Uh, right now, you're actually helping number of people within your program. But the people outside the program is not benefiting from your leadership. Think about how much more impact you can have being a dean. You can impact the entire college or the school of business. So I start thinking about that and realize that perhaps they are correct in thinking that that I can do more to really contribute to people's um, growth and and their development uh, by becoming a dean. So. So I became a dean not because I want to grab the power or I want to have that status or have the corner office, so to speak. But I became a dean because I thought perhaps I could help more people, you know, students, faculty, and others, uh, stakeholders outside the outside the college. Um, so that really became the driving force. And you know, when I look at my entire career career, I realized that. You know, unless I make a switch, you know, I may not have the opportunity. So that's really what triggered me to uh, seek out a uh, dean's position. That's awesome. And that corner office and, doesn't and hurt you, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm always fascinated talking uh, when we get to talk to people in education, right? Because you get to theoretically see some of the working force, workforce before they enter the workforce, right? You get to see their mm-hmm. development, sure. kind of where their priorities are, where are they focused today? Um, so I have to ask, I mean, over the four years, you got to see pre-pandemic, now post-pandemic students as well. Mm-hmm. Do you see, being that you've had such a long history in working in leadership, and mind you, a bachelor's degree in chemistry, like I have a bachelor's degree in biology, <laughs> but have you oh, seen a generational <laughs> difference in leadership styles as well as like emotional intelligence? Is it taught or is it... Uh, 
Well, I, I think the um, it's it was definitely nurtured. Um, now, some people may assume, well, it's it's you're born with it because you know you may have developed something when you're young and you haven't seen people going through the process of development. So, you know, if you run into somebody says, wow, so-and-so is such great, outstanding. And, but you haven't seen how that person developed over time. So you're actually seeing the end result, not the starting process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, think about a baby. Does baby demonstrate emotional intelligence? Um, maybe some, maybe not, but Obviously, as you grow up, you got exposed to different opportunities, and then you have opportunities to learn and develop. Um, people may not have seen that. They only see the result at the end and, and assume that, oh, you must have had this for a long time or you're born with it. But people develop uh, leadership. Um, and I, I usually tell people leadership is probably the most unnatural act we wow. can do as a human being. Because if you, if you think about the evolutionary path of human beings. I mean, you know, we start off thinking we have to preserve ourselves. So looking out for self-interest, looking out for number one is our first priority. If you are dead, obviously, <laughs> what's the point, right? So the survival instinct is, is, is what drives us. So that means we're looking out for our self-interest or self-preservation. But to be a great leader, you have to give that up. Because it's not about you. You're actually working to help others. So your priority is no longer you. Your priority is, is others. So to me, that that is a completely <laughs> shift away from our evolutionary background. That rather than looking out for oneself, looking out for self-preservation and interest, you are now looking out for others' interests, looking out for... Now, there are many leaders, quote-unquote, who doesn't do that? And obviously those are not very effective or outstanding. So mm -hmm. I'm talking about people who are really great leaders. Mm -hmm. And if you look, look at those people, you, the common theme you always come across is that they're looking out for others first mm -hmm. rather than themselves. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a huge differentiator between somebody who is truly outstanding versus somebody who is not. But yeah, it really on. goes against our human nature. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, when I, you, you when I learned that those experiences, that's, that's fascinating. Absolutely. And what a good feeling that is. <clears throat> you know, I've had a little experience when I caught a glimpse of, Oh my gosh, I don't have to worry about myself all the time. Yeah. All right. I, that, I can, I can take that piece of cake and eat it, you know, and, and just to see what you can give to others. And all of a sudden it starts a tidal wave comes back to you really. And then you kind of start seeing this chemistry of people all getting together and, and working together, helping each other out. It, it's fascinating. And it's, it's awesome mm -hmm. to see, you know, people a lot more prominent than Tyler White doing that, you know, out there. And, and then because you, once you've done it, you, you, you know that language, I want to say. You know, sure. you, you exactly. You pick up on certain things people are saying because you've been there. You know, like, I know exactly what that guy's saying right now or that lady's saying because my butt's been on the front line of that before. And I just wanted to ask you real quick, Kenneth, who's, I was, before we get into more leadership stuff, I wanted to ask you, why is Nazareth Business School better than St. John Fisher's? <laughs> <laughs> is it a bit of a rivalry? Well, I, I, yeah, well, obviously, uh, we are friendly uh, uh, rivals. Uh, All right. You know, well, you know the history behind the two schools. At one point, you know, you have a men's school, women's school. So uh, we are very um, looking out for different um, target audience, so to speak. But obviously now we are competing with, with each other directly because we are you know, both co-ed. Uh, probably the biggest difference I see is the, the Nazareth uh, School of Business and Leadership, um, not just comparing with St. John Fisher, but any other business school, we are different in a sense that we focus not just on business knowledge and skills, but we focus on human factor, human mm -hmm. skills. And that's the reason we uh, renamed the school from school of business or management to school of business and leadership because we want to focus on both. And I think that's really become, that is a distinguishing factor for our business school is we're really looking at the, the convergence of business and humanity. 
And, and that I think differentiate us from any other business school that you might come across. And I think in terms of the future of business, and you know, I talked about the convergence of technology, business, and human factor. And those three areas uh, tend to converge, but when you look at what's happening in business environment these days, you know, people seems to be focused so much on either business or technology, but ignoring the human factor. And I really think the key to future success is the human factor. Um, think about talent um, management, talent recruitment, talent retention. I mean, that's a key factor in your success of your business. How can you be successful if you don't have the right talent mm -hmm. working for you? So, you know, being able to integrate the human factor into business and technology is going to be the key to success for the future. So that's where we position ourselves. And that's how we differentiate us from the rest of the other business schools. Oh, awesome. I'll, I'll Can you stand, dive stand on that soapbox with you, skills? Tyler, and everybody else. Because that's, that's, that's really <laughs> what, what we get to see. That's what separates, that separates great companies from, from average to, to poor organizations. And, and it, it is that understanding of the correlation between your human capital and financial capital, that there is a real relationship mm -hmm. there. It is our number one business expense but we can't keep up trying to apply other business practices like Lean Six Sigma to something that's so much different than a just a process or, or, or a production, let's say. Um, one of the things that I always wanted to, sure. to talk about with you is understanding how you get leadership comfortable with change, right? How do you teach that it's, it's, it is a constant evolution, right? I mean, 20 years ago, we had the businesses had the luxury that there was more employees than, than jobs, right? And now that, that has kind of shifted, right? The organizations that have focused on talent attraction, retention, development, and engagement mm -hmm. um, are not seeing the amount of turnover that these other organizations are seeing. How do you get leaders comfortable with change? Because I see people so paralyzed from the fear of change that it actually causes more detriment um, in the long run. Yeah, sure. I, I think the uh, Mark Twain actually uh, says something which kind of uh, uh, echoes the, uh, the the sentiment of many people. Yeah, he once said, "I'm all for progress. I'm just not for change." Um, so, so basically, you know, people you know, say, yeah, we, we, we want to um, change, but a lot of times when you're faced with actual change, people tend to behave in a way that's different from what they're espousing. So, and to me, you know, effective leadership or outstanding leadership is really equate to change. You know, think about it, the definition of leadership, you're leading people to somewhere. Well, where do you lead people to? Well, you lead people to hopefully new vision, the frontier, and, and where, you know, um, people wants to go in the future. So when you are doing that, I think the change is part of being a leader. So to me, leadership and change go hand in hand. And I cannot see change happening without effective leadership. I cannot see effective leadership without change. Mm -hmm. So they really are um, you know, it's like, you know, think about the coin, you got two faces, right? So front and back. And so leadership and change is really the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, in the same coin. So that's how I see leadership and change. In fact, if I could just do a little promo, you know, we actually Nazareth College, um, the School of Business and Leadership has a graduate program called Leadership and Change. And that program came about is that a lot of the programs, graduate programs, especially MBA programs, I'm really focused on leadership and change. So we actually created a program that's dedicated toward developing leadership and giving those leadership the skills to be an effective change agent or change uh, facilitators. So we have a brand new program on leadership and change. That is fantastic. Well, um, whose idea was it to add leadership instead of management like most business schools to, to the title of uh, what was it, you know, School of Business and Leadership. Was that all you, Kenneth? Yeah, I think the idea came from a lot of different people. I, I facilitate the process of change. And we all came to a, a consensus that you know, this is something that we, uh, we wanted to do. 
Um, so, um, you know, it doesn't matter who came up with the idea. I think the key factor is that we all bought into the process and we all, we, everyone worked together to make it happen. And to me, that that's the key. And now yeah, I see why you're the dean of the Nazareth <laughs> Business School, because you have unbelievable ability to check your ego and bring, bring together other people and not and share that excitement. One of the things that I've been focusing on kind of, and I always have, is the difference between positive and negative words or, or, or just words in general. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think the words people choose to use really shows their real intention of what they're saying. Um, I assume, obviously, in the leadership and the, the business development side that you guys are doing there at Nazareth, that communication and language is probably one of the areas of focus because without it, you are unable to really build trust with those people that you need them to trust you the most, mm -hmm. right, in order to, to, to get the final result. What types of tips are you giving leaders to improperly communicating with their superior, whether it's their peers, whether it's their subordinates? whatever it might be, what types of tricks are you, are you telling people from a communication and word selection perspective today? Because it is very different than it was before. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's interesting that you used, you used the word tricks um, because to me, probably the best way to communicate is be authentic, Correct. You know, transparent and be honest um, as much as you can. Um, so I think the, um, you know, the being authentic is the key. And, you know, my wife tells me this all the time. It's not what you say, but how you say it. So obviously the way you craft your language is very important, but if I can add one more to that, so it's, it's being authentic and being able to communicate the way, um, the, the appropriate way to communicate, but also, uh, behave in a way that's consistent with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You know, I always talked about leading by example and people always ask me when I was leading a, a leadership program in the past, you know, what is the most difficult aspect of being a director or being a, uh, being a, a dean is really leading by example. Because it's easier to say things to people, but to enact your words to match that you know, I call it having that integrity, meaning the consistency between what you say and how you behave is really the difficult aspect to being an effective leadership. So um, that's probably the most difficult part of my job because, you know, we are, we are, we all are human beings, right? So we're not infallible. So we make mistakes. We do things, you know, um, not sometimes we make mistakes and do things that's not very desirable, but uh, but the key thing is we try to be as consistent as possible, maintain our integrity between what we say and what we do um, has all that to be a uh, success when it comes to leadership. Absolutely. That, that leading by example, I, actually doing the work, you know, is where it's at. You know, people, people seem to tend to that more than being preached to, I, I, in my experience. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I was going to ask you, Kenneth, um, if I was a young leader out there, change is a big word, I think. I, you could just blow it out of proportion, mm -hmm. I think, and get so far ahead of yourself, maybe. And what, what is your advice to a young leader on just kind of where to start if they're owning a business, you know, of, of 30 to 50 people? Um, and where would you start without just, you know, eating the whole elephant all at one time, like a guy like me would try to do and probably <laughs> fail my way back into saying, say, and just saying, Hey, we got to, you know, and maybe, and almost maybe to the, 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 the key of like, what we have right now ain't that bad if we do it right. You know, like, it, like, that's another thing I always think about, you know, it's the other side of change. It's like, well, if I am so grateful for everything I have right now and treat people perfect and do the next right thing, why should I change? You know, then I'm trying to change something bad. So if you, I have a pendulum in my, my skull, if you can't see, you know, if you can't tell on which way to go sometimes, because sometimes I'm so grateful that I'm right here. I do the next right thing. I treat the person with integrity, all this good stuff. Then I'm trying to change at the same time. Why would I want to change that? Mm -hmm. So can you kind of iron that out for us? Uh, yeah. So there's, there's a couple of things um, I could um, contribute to what you're asking. One, I think the change is, is in, inevitable. 
I mean, changes is going to happen. So either you could embrace it and, and be proactive about it, or you could try to resist and fight until it's too late. Think about all the um, country, nations or um, companies that um, cease to exist because they refuse to change or refuse to adapt. So, um, you know, to me, one aspect of outstanding leadership is being proactive with change, that, that you don't wait until the last minute and try to change because you have to. You do it because you anticipate what may happen in the future and proactively adapt your, you or your organizations uh, for the future. I think that's really the key to sustainability in the uh, long run that you can be sustainable as an organization if you can continue to do so. And second thing is you talked about young people starting out, where do you start? I would say you start with yourself. Uh, one of the key skill any outstanding leaders demonstrate is self-awareness. So being more aware about who you are, what you are, what, are you, what your strengths might be, what are the areas you may need to change. I think that's really the first step. You know, it has to start with oneself. There is actually a famous Chinese uh, saying that actually said, uh, it goes something like this. Uh, it's a kind of rough translation that before you can manage the entire world, you have to learn how to manage your country. Before you can manage your country, you have to learn how to manage your city. Before your city, you have to manage your town. Before you can manage your town, you have to learn how to manage your family. But before you can do that, you have to learn how to manage yourself. So I think really starts with self uh, is the starting point for any type of leadership development. Because when you think about it, if you don't know about yourself, how can you be effective leader leading other people? So I think it's really the starting point itself. If you start with that, expand, to you know, focusing on others after that, that's gonna be uh, highly successful. That's awesome, that is awesome. I think you got mute, Kevin. <laughs> oh, well, no, I, what, I, you I, know, I, what I'm trying to say. I know, I love your, sorry, I loved your piece about talking about having the foresight, right? I see a lot of people, if they refuse to adapt, they refuse to change because they're constantly functioning in this state of organized chaos. And it's like, if you're constantly in that firefighting mode, it's hard to look down the road, right? It's like, I need to do this and we have to do this. And, and, and you can't, it always seems like you can't get ahead. Um, and sometimes change is less scary, right? If we take that proactive stance and, and futuristic look to predict maybe future challenges and problems that we have. And this is how I coach HR professionals is that they need to be having similar conversations with the CEO about the business goals and the business strategy, because people need to be behind that strategy in order to pull that off. Um, but without that foresight, then it requires organizations to make massive changes that are highly ineffective instead of micro corrections. Do you see the same? Yeah, I, I think that's a common, common phenomenon. Common phenomenon I see in many organizations. They tend to wait till the last minute and they're forced to change. And usually, uh, when, when that happens, you know, rushing to get stuff done, and you tend to ignore the uh, the, the right process. So. Uh, the outcome is not going to be very effective. Um, you know, one thing I've learned over the years is that if you uh, execute using the right process, you are more likely to achieve the right outcome. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you ignore the process and only focus on the outcome, chances are you're not going to achieve the outcome uh, that is desired by you. So uh, I always use the example of uh, putting when you play golf. You know, you don't just focus on the hole and says, okay, I'm going to get my golf ball into the hole. You have to really think about the entire process of looking at the, the shape of the green, the speed, everything else. If you get all those things, the right um, information into the process, and then you putt, then it's kind of automatic that the ball will go into your hole. But if you ignore the process and only focus on the hole, then chances are it's not going to go in. So I think it's really important to focus on the right process, but when, when, the, there's, 
when things are at the last minute, chances are you're not going to be able to do that rush, because yeah. you know, a lot of different factors comes to play and you tend to rush through the rush through things. And as a result, you're not going to get the outcome you desire. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think it's important to be proactive. And I also talk about self-disruptions. Um, you know, how do you as an organization, you know, uh, Tyler, you talked about being comfortable. Why should I change? Well, a lot of times you have to be um, self-disruptive. You know, think about, um, you know, I, I use Apple as one example. You know, when you, when you look at how they innovate, sometimes they make changes, even though they're not being forced to. You know, mm -hmm. think about the, uh, I mean, this is a long time ago. This might indicate how old I am. <laughs> but the, uh, think about the floppy disk. The, uh, when we used to use floppy disks and, uh, you know, wh which company actually changed the two, three and a half from five and quarter, Apple. Which company that actually got rid of the <laughs> floppy disk altogether, Apple. I mean, when you and were they forced to? No, other companies weren't doing it, but they did it. They were the first one to uh, do that you, because they you recognized that, to innovation that and like the culture itself. Yeah. Like, yeah, what, do well, you, what, do you, what do you attribute that? Yeah, well, I think innovation is the part of the process, and and but innovation happens because you are willing to self disrupt. Mm. That yeah, you're willing to take that risk to say, okay, we're gonna make a change happen, even though we're not forced to because it's the right thing to do or it's the wave of the future. And if you recognize where the future might be going, let's, let's do that now instead of waiting five years down the road that where everybody's doing it, let's do it first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, Tyler and I have been joking about it all, all the time. It's just like the sign-on bonus where we're, we're only drawing people in from a compensation standpoint. It, it, it's, it's, it's lack of creativity, in my opinion. It's, a, it's lack of understanding, really. And, and like you said, sometimes we focus on the end result, the end goal so much that we forget what it takes to actually properly build the foundation necessary to support that goal or that, that result. Yeah. I mean, just to add to what you just said about compensation, yeah, money is important, but People are not just looking for money. They're looking for the right environment to uh, work in, you know, where they feel empowered. They feel they can um, be creative and be able to um, have autonomy to do things that makes a difference in what they do and make an impact for people within the organization and the, for the organizations and their customers and clients. So, so it's not just about saying, oh, we just have to pay people more and they'll come. No, you have to create a right, right environment where people wants to come, be part of your organization. Yeah. You know, creating an inclusive environment is another thing that if people wants to be part of your organization, they wanna belong, they wanna be um, you know, participatory, but then you have to have that type of environment. Mm -hmm. Money can go so far. Mm -hmm. That's exactly words, so it right? gets people out of bed right yeah. there, you know, <laughs> golly. I know, I know I've been lied me to out a couple bed, times you know, little... in some job interviews too. Told, told one thing and, and something <laughs> else is totally, uh, and, and that's what I think some organizations that are trying to discount the work necessary, which is hard work. Um, they're trying to almost present it as something other than what it actually is. So that's, that's fascinating. And I, I always talk about kind of tipping point. Yeah, m money is important, obviously. But at some point, it's, it's not going to matter to people. You know, if you make a certain amount of money, you say, you know, I'm going to look at other factors as well as just money. Mm -hmm. So now I always advise my new, um, students when they graduate, because they tend to be young and they tend to look at money compensation as the primary factor. And I've seen so many cases where students graduate, take the job that pays them the most. And then six months later, they're looking for a new job again. And I usually ask them what's going on because, yeah, I don't like the company. I don't in enjoy the environment. So I always tell um, the graduate, yeah, money is important, but look at how good is your fit with the organization that you're in. Is the organization allow you to accomplish things that you want to accomplish? Is the organization make you feel empowered to do things that you need to do, to feel uh, alive and feel that you can develop yourself? Mm -hmm. If not, you know, money can go so far. So I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's why my culture is so elusive for a lot of organizations to kind of get, get their head around, right? Because it's ever changing. It's constantly right. evolving. Um, it's never a check of the box. One of the things that I've noticed, and sometimes 
it's done maybe purposefully or, or unknowingly is we have the ability, leaders tend to gravitate towards people that they have similarities with um, or see commonality mm-hmm. with, um, but also that they're typically not challenged or and if they're not self-challenging themselves and they're surrounding themselves with middle tiered managers and senior leadership that are just yes people, how do we break that? Mm-hmm. How do we break that tradition of, well, let me fight that human nature of my own to gravitate towards somebody that I have similarities with and, and they're not, they're going to never challenge me in order to get the innovation, to get to where we need to be um, as an organization where we can't be just status quo. Yeah, I, I think the obviously diversity is very important. So you have to think more about the type of people that you're going to be surrounding yourself with. So that becomes a very important part of having that diversity. But in addition to that, you have to create a safe environment for people to voice their opinions. You know, even though you have a diverse group of people, but if you create a kind of, a, um, you know, dictatorial environment where everybody has to say what you want to hear, then, or people are afraid to say what you need to hear, well, then you're not going to get the desired, desired, desired uh, impact or effect. So you have to create a safe environment for people to be able to voice their different opinions and be able to um, you know, create, a, uh, create a, a scenario where you are getting very diverse ideas from your, your team or the group that you're working with. So that's really the key is, you know, it, yes, you, do, you want to attract people who are diverse, but at the same time, you need to create an environment where they feel okay to be diverse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for instance, you know, if, you're, if I walk into a meeting, I'm the boss and you, and you say, well, this is the way it's going to happen. Any questions? Well, people are going to say, <laughs> um, may, maybe not. Okay. Okay. Well, since nobody objects, we're going to go Great ahead. idea. Yeah. <laughs> Like, you know, um, but if you walk in thinking, okay, do you have any ideas about this particular issue and you are the last person to speak, well, people may feel more comfortable to speak up on ideas. And if you pattern that, you know, keep using that process, then after, you know, after a few times, people are going to feel like, okay, you know, I, I guess I, I, I have freedom to say things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there is no um, preset, decision that's been made by the leader. So it's important for us to have that conversation where diverse ideas may come across. And I always tell people, you know, best ideas can come from anyone. It doesn't have to be from me as a team leader or my leader of the organization. So I love to hear from everyone. So I usually tend to ask people first before mm-hmm. I speak, because if you speak first, chances are you are, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you are actually biasing people because they know what you're thinking mm-hmm. and there is a power differential. So, mm-hmm. you know, chances are they're going to, you know, unless, unless you have a type of people or environment where they are free to disagree with you, chances are they're not going to speak up. They're gonna, yeah. just going to say, yeah, great idea, boss. Yeah. And then the leadership almost has an altered state of reality of the actual health of the organization, too, because they're only being told what they want to hear, um, not 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 what. Right. What exactly. Should hear. I love that. Tyler. Yeah, actually, just give you a quick example. A uh, couple of institutions ago, when I first started to work there, I was told that, well, uh, don't say this to so and so. Don't say this to the president. I mm-hmm. said, why not? Because, well. Uh, he only want to hear positive news. So pretty soon, everybody's not saying anything that's issues or problems. Only thing that's communicating upward is positive. So the president actually had a, um, a purview or perspective of everything is going great. Everything is rosy and, and there, is not, there are no problems. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So that's an example of how something like that could impact what you're hearing as a leader. So sometimes you have to you know, reach out to people and get a pulse of the organization, not just rely on your VPs or people that report directly to you, because that may be filtered by whatever these customs or culture that may exist in the organization. Oh, that is awesome. And 
I think have like that feeling of having a muzzle on your mouth is might be the worst, you know, especially <laughs> when you feel it in your gut that something's just not right. You're just kind of a bobblehead agreeing with everything. I mean, it's just so nice to to hear it justified from you, Dean. This is this is making my morning that much better. Um, I was gonna You're say, not as crazy uh, as you thought. That's right. Not to bite my own head off sometimes, you know, not with my company now, but just in my, my past life, you know, you're just sitting there like, oh, is something wrong around here? Because my body is getting hot, you know? Um, but I was thinking uh, about purpose. We were kind of hitting on a little while ago, um, you know, getting out of bed with a purpose, have being empowered, um, you know, have actually making a difference. Where, where did you find your uh, purpose, Dean, uh, Dean Kenneth? Like, did you, did you, uh, do you have any best practices for us younger, the younger generation out there on, on that true meaning of purpose and what it really means to, to find it? Because I, I, I just love to know your experience. Yeah, um, I think it's important for us to spend some time reflecting about, you know, what, what motivates you, what drives you and, you know, what is purpose behind you know, what you do? And I think it's important for every person to be engaged in the process and trying to figure out, you know, what, what is your purpose? And, you know, these are one of the popular concepts uh, people talk about these days is purpose-driven leadership. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it's, a, it, it's a new concept people talk about, but is it a new it's keyword? been around it's just for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's one thing you, you discover that people come up with new things and as if this is something new, brand new, and nobody has thought about it before, but people have been, you know, doing this for a long time. Leadership is not new. Ever since we are born, going back to the human history, you know, the leadership is there. I mean, you know, the, the minute the, the uh, one person decide to collaborate with somebody else and form a group or a community, well, that's where the leadership comes from. Comes from. So, you know, it's been there for a long time. So, you know, nothing is really brand new. Um, so, um, and, you know, because the human beings haven't really changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, fundamentally, I think we are the pretty much the same uh, creatures that, you know, our forefathers have been. So I think it's important for us to recognize that regardless of what terminology that we use, I think it's important to recognize that, that there, is, there is a fundamental uh, basis for what makes our life meaningful. So it doesn't have to be leadership. It, you could be doing something different, but you have to have a purpose in what you do. I mean, why do you get up in the morning, as you said, go to work or do something? There has to be some purpose or the meaning behind what you do. And, and People have done research and found out even people who think that, yeah, people are doing repetitive work, you know, working in a factory, creating a widget. But even those people, you know, uh, what we have discovered is that they wanted to see there is a purpose behind what they do. And, and that if you want to make them contribute toward the, the betterment of, of the organization, they have to feel that they're doing some meaningful work. It's not just cranking out widgets and, and making money for the organization. There has to be something meaningful. Whether you do it, you're creating something that can benefit the customers, saving lives, or doing something that your your organization is doing or your product is doing, I think that has to have to have some meaning behind their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my grandfather always uh, he he used to work for for a large uh, uh, manufacturer. So you talked about widgets and. He too said uh, what he showed the people on the line was that their product was going into airplanes that are above their head that people were riding every single day. So the quality needed to be there to really protect the lives. And and he said that that's when he saw a a new connection to the business of people, because sometimes they get into the day of, like you said, you get into the action, you're just doing action, action, action. You're just doing a process. You really have no idea where that product's being shipped to, where it's where you're going to have a potential impact until Mm -hmm. the business sometimes helps connect those dots. Um, We talk about uh, going through trauma, right? We all experience the same trauma going through the pandemic. And leadership is now at this point where they have to change because everybody kind of went through the same experience 
and it seems like hard lines in the stand uh, in the sand and be, people trying to tell people what they're going to do is having the adverse effect it used to be effective now it's highly ineffective and causes people to kind of speak with their feet and head for the exit what are you how are you educating leadership on their own evolution here post pandemic We've heard terms like emotional intelligence now, like that's at a forefront. We talked about mm -hmm. emotional diverse or, or uh, emotional diversity um, on your boards and on your senior leadership teams. We're hearing terms mm -hmm. and, and like you, it's like almost I sit back and like, what, what's the new keyword that we're going to come out that some new leadership guy is going to write a book and it's all about this style. Um, but fundamentally, if we went back to what we learned in kindergarten, that's pretty much what everybody's saying. It's like, check your ego, be able to speak last. I love mm -hmm. that. Other, listen more, all these types of things. But where, where, where are we headed? Where's leadership headed? Where, where's the future of work headed in your estimation? Um, you know, I think the last, um, it's almost two years now since we Crazy. had that uh, lockdown, March, March of 2020. I remember sitting in my office one day and next day, boom, <laughs> I'm back at home working uh, virtual. So it just happened just like that. And then of course, we're still going through the pandemic. It's not over yet. And uh, you know, we have a new variant studying and now people are starting to panic again. So you know, this can drag on for a while. I mean, you know, I was hoping that by this fall, things would get better, but you know, Delta, basically um, scrap the idea of being better again. And now we have another uh, variant coming along and who knows what's gonna happen in 22. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be very interesting um, looking at how things will happen. And I think the, the, the way we work is forever changed as a result of the pandemic. Now, I was telling some folks the other day that everything we talk about it was there before the pandemic, meaning, you know, think about technology. Zoom was there before the, uh, before the pandemic. Um, people are doing things remote, virtually. But what pandemic has done is that it just accelerated the change, the rate of change. And I think, you know, I think it's forever changed the way we work. You know, you know I have people telling me they're not gonna go back to work if they have to be there five days a week full time, you know, physically. Uh, I have to tell, I have seen people say, you know, I want to have more flexibility the way we, the way I work. And some people are saying, you know, it's 40 hours a week. Is that still uh, valid? You know, perhaps, you know, why should I be working, you know, 40 hours if I can get my work done in 30 hours? You know, it used to be that the time was the, uh, the basis for uh, your work. So, you know, I call it input and output. People always look at the input. How many hours have you spent? Well, you spent 40 hours. Okay, good. We'll pay you for 40 hours. But now I think people are starting to look at, well, what's the output? Well, if you can get the same work done in 30 hours, well, why should you work 40 hours? Maybe it's only 30 hours. Mm -hmm. um, so I think these are the type of questions that's going to be raised by empl employees, the workers saying, hey, wait a second. You know, I think that we have to change the way we um, do the work well, that means change in leadership. The, the management or leadership has to figure out. It's like, okay, yeah, the way we look at things in the past, I was talking to one of the uh, managers and he says the biggest struggle he had during the pandemic is he cannot check on people mm -hmm. because they're all remote. So he doesn't know what people are doing their work or not because when he, he was at work, he could just walk around and see what people are doing. But now he has no idea what people are doing at home. Well, I said, well, why, why do you need to know? Don't you see what they're producing? I mean, why don't you check their outputs? As long as they're getting their work done, who cares? If they, if they take a half hour break, who cares? As long as they're getting their work done, that should be one you should, you should focus on, not care about, not, oh, is this person putting in eight hours a day? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's it's, it's shift for some managers because mm -hmm. you know the, especially the managers that are focusing on control yeah. rather than empowerment. I think it's a sh significant shift for those people oh, yeah. in the post-pandemic era that is to go from controlling everything 
to letting go of everything. I think that's going to be the key shift for some some managers. And some people are already shifting. Some are resisting. You know, I had one manager telling me, I'm trying to wrap my head around all these changes that's going on. It's like, well, forget about wrapping your head around. It's already happened. So move on. You know, you have to shift. Um, so that's up. <laughs> That's awesome. But I, I, I think I think this is not uncommon. I've seen I heard people talk about this all the time these days. And I, I really think that we have to the leadership has to really rethink about how you measure people's work mm -hmm. or how you um, monitor people's work. And that's gonna be very different. So I, I talked about going from inputs to output, forget about eight hours a day think about what are you expecting them to produce at the end of the day and whatever however however they do that who cares yeah um but i think for some people because they are still used to that input uh, mentality that you have to be here eight hours a day in order to be productive yeah. and and to me that's an old way of doing things i think that the new age you know post pandemic is going to be very different so if the companies are slow to adapt, I think they're going to lose more talent yeah. as a oh, result. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think the old way, we need to re-envision uh, Henry Ford's uh, eight to five work schedule because it was effective for manufacturing, but is it as effective in sales? Is it as effective in, in all these other industries in which we see? And the first company to offer a four-day work week in upstate New York will probably have a line of people lining up at their door. Mm -hmm. Um, so it is going to take more outside the box and creative thinking. And, and thanks to you, we have unbelievable education systems that you are educating and coaching the future leadership to have a more worldly view of business, that it's not all about profits at the end of the day. It's about purpose. It's about your people. Um, so Kenneth, I just wanted to say thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of the show with Tyler and I. This was awesome. Um, I learned a ton yeah. um, and a lot of great uh, tidbits of advice out there for leaders that are looking to get to leadership, <laughs> are already in leadership, that change. And, and one of my favorite pieces was always speak last. So thank you so much for the conversation today, Kenneth. And hopefully I can come see you on campus one day and see uh, that corner office. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure anytime and uh and thank you once again thank you for inviting me and really it's been great speaking with you and hopefully it will be helpful to you and others um uh, as they're watching the uh, podcast thank you awesome, awesome kid this is nice to meet you i gotta run y'all have a good day all right take it easy right, thanks very much <laughs>